If you grew up in an American school system, then it wouldn't take long before you were exposed to the name Helen Keller, the infamous name of Helen Keller. As many of you already know, she was born without sight, without the ability to hear. She was born in Alabama on June 27th, 1880. So tomorrow is June 27th. According to my football math, that would make it her 136th birthday. I think few, if any of us, can possibly relate to what that experience must have been like to go through life without any sight and without any hearing. Perhaps you had a teacher in school even encourage you to uh, plug your ears and close your eyes for a few moments just to gain a sense of what that might be like. And because of, uh, it's impossible to replicate that experience because we'll always hear vibrations. We can never completely block out all the light in our feeble attempts, especially as children. Yet the story of Helen Keller would never have been known without another person who intervened and made a tremendous impact in Keller's life. It was a woman by the name of Ann Sullivan, Keller's teacher. She was the one who broke through the social isolation imposed by her disabilities. Ann Sullivan was the one who rescued Keller from her social darkness, allowing this little girl to blossom as she taught her a way to communicate. What happened after that is unprecedented. It's absolutely amazing. Keller became the first deaf-blind person to receive a Bachelor of Arts degree. She went on to become an author, an activist, and a lecturer. According to Wikipedia, she was inducted into the Alabama Women's Hall of Fame in 1971 and was one of 12 inaugural inductees to the Alabama Writers Hall of Fame on June 8th, 2015. All this because Ann Sullivan found a way to help Helen Keller overcome her physical disabilities of blindness and deafness. There's actually even a movie called, some of you may have seen it, called The Miracle Worker that shares the details of Sullivan's impact on Keller's life. And I share this story to appropriately set the stage for the true miracle worker, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Sullivan found a way to overcome the limitations of physical blindness and deafness of one little girl. But what can and should be celebrated about the one who has overcome and can break through the spiritual deafness and the spiritual blindness that every single person on the planet is born into? Does that not add some perspective? Amen. Amen. And the title of our message is Our Sight-Giving Savior. And we're going to study a single miracle performed by Jesus as he gives sight to a blind man. Like many other of his miracles, this, of course, uh, affirms his deity. It also helps us to see that the Lord is filled with compassion for people. Yet there is something very unique about it as well. Let me share just three insights. First, it's the only miracle that Jesus performs by touching someone in stages. Why does he do this? 
He initially takes the blind man by the hand, and we're going to see as we, as we read the passage eventually, then he touches him one time, and then he touches him a second time. Second, this miracle is only recorded here in Mark's gospel. Why were the other gospel writers led to omit it? What is the significance of Mark being led by the Holy Spirit to be the only one to include it? And why is it strategically placed at this point in the gospel in Mark chapter 8? Third, how should this miracle impact you and I? What does God want you and I to see as we study it together? Let's try to get our arms around it and start by reading it together. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26 says this, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes... And laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus heal a number of people. He's healed a deaf and mute man, a woman with a flow of blood, a man with a withered hand, a paralytic, a leper, and many others with unspecified diseases and maladies. We've seen him cast demons out of people. We've even seen him bring a dead girl back to life. However, this is the first specific instance of a blind person being brought to Jesus for healing. Why now and why here? Those of you who have been with us, you have heard me say this and prepare our hearts for this, that this is a climactic chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And it's, it's leading us to the great confession coming in Mark 8.29. And up until this point, spiritual blindness is an embedded theme in Mark's gospel account. Those who are spiritually blind to the Messiah are not small in number. And it involves a significant number of groups, religious and political groups that we've talked about. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Last week we also inducted the Herodians. Right? It also involves a number of People in the crowd who were only seeking Jesus under false pretenses who were spiritually blind. We've even seen that the disciples are often characterized by spiritual blindness and unbelief, right? This miracle is going to serve to be symbolic in many ways. Mark includes this miracle here because it symbolizes spiritual sight being confirmed to the blind disciples. In Mark's account of this healing of the man at Bethsaida, not only the climax of the story, but the entire narrative is constructed on this motif of seeing. In our English translations, we can see the word to see or saw uh, several times. But in the Greek, there are eight different words used for nine instances of seeing in verses 23 through 25 alone. 
So that's just a little exegetical insight that I wanted to bring your way. This is all about vision. This is all about spiritual sight. This is all about seeing. Both our sermon title and our proposition reflect this sight motif as our passage reveals two ongoing actions of our sight-giving Savior so that we see the Messiah as the only remedy to spiritual blindness. And the first action, it's in your outline, that we need to see is that our sight-giving Savior rescues us from blindness. This physical miracle defines a spiritual reality that is true for every believer and one that would eventually be proven true for the disciples when they see Christ unveiled as the Messiah. The Lord and his disciples, we know, were recently on a boat. They took off from Dalmanutha, right, according to verse 9. On the, the way over, they've been warned by Jesus of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. We learned last Sunday that the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Herodians that the disciples were indoctrinated with still revealed blind spots in their thinking, especially when it came to ministering to the Gentiles, and especially when it would come to the temptation to receive accolations and, and notoriety, right, from the Jewish people, which was representative of the leaven of Herod. Now the boat has arrived at the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they've arrived at Bethsaida. And interestingly, some of you may recall that this is the exact same place that Jesus had sent them to after they performed, after the first miraculous feeding, back in Mark 6.45, which is probably more of a coincidence than anything. We do know that Jesus did plenty of ministry here and that he didn't have a high view of the city. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Our Lord indicts the Jewish population from Bethsaida for their hardness of heart and unbelief. And it seems that the leaven of the Pharisees was deeply embedded into their thinking. So much so that Jesus mentions two Gentile populated cities that he says would have repented had they had seen the same miracles performed. This miracle that Jesus performs with the blind man here in Mark 8 is one of his last public miracles because he's making a transition. Some of you may be familiar with this. Jesus had a public ministry, then he, he transitions to a private ministry, preparing his disciples, then he goes on to the passion ministry, right? Those are the, 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 the three groups. I also just wanted to share that um, this being the, the last miracle in Bethsaida, and considering the response that the Lord shared in Luke 10, 13, and 14, that this, is, this may be why in verse 26 of our passage today that Jesus is going to discourage him from even going back to, even to, 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 to the village. Why? Because he knows. He knows the hardness of heart. He knows the unbelief that the man would, would encounter. We know that this blind man was brought to Jesus by 
a group of people that we can probably safely presume were friends or family members. We don't know how many there are because uh, the only insight that we have is that the Greek verb translated they brought is in the plural form. So we know that it's, it's, it's two or more. Okay, Could have been a good number. We, we don't know. I called this the compassionate escort. You'll notice as the first sub-point. Because verse 22 goes on to say, they implored Jesus to touch him. The ESV, and I like that translation a little bit better, it's stronger um, in this verse. They begged Jesus, which I think reflects the heartbeat of their action. You know, if there's one thing that I think greatly encourages Jesus in the gospel accounts, it's when anyone would lovingly, sacrificially bring someone to him to be healed, especially when it is accompanied by faith, right? And we saw an example of that back in Mark chapter 2, when the the paralytic, they they even made a hole in the roof, you'll remember, and they, they lowered him down, and Jesus is just blown away by their faith. Certainly a picture and a principle we can apply from here is the beauty of leading someone to the Lord. Who escorted you to the Lord? Who took you by the hand? Who escorted you out of the realm of darkness? How grateful are we, huh? How grateful are we for that person that shared the gospel with us? And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is part of God's rescuing plan. He sovereignly and strategically places people in our path so so that he can draw them to himself. Fascinating. Sometimes he uses another believer to direct our steps to him. Sometimes he uses unbelievers and the destruction of sin to draw people to himself. Either way, the Lord stands ready and willing to take you and I by the hand, which leads us to our second sub-point under point one, the rescuing hand of Jesus. Look at the beginning of verse 23. It reads, Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. We need to note right from the beginning that Jesus touching this man would have been considered taboo, especially by any Jew, but especially the religious Jews, the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. And their poor theology led them to believe that anyone born blind was cursed by God. You see evidence of this teaching in John 9. Those who are familiar with that passage in that story They asked Jesus, his disciples asked him, and they said, why is this man born blind? Is it on the account of his sin or on the account of his parents' sin? And Jesus taught them that neither was the case. No scribes, Pharisees, or rabbis would have touched this guy who would have been considered a social outcast and who would have been treated as contagious. After all, they didn't even know what was the cause, right? of his blindness, so they just, they just, it just, they couldn't risk touching him. What does our Savior do? He literally takes him by the hand. What a beautiful picture of grace this is. By the way, there's no safer place than to be in the hands and in the grip of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? No safer place. 
holding hands with anyone involves some level of intimacy, never mind the fact that he was deemed unclean by the religious leaders of the day. R. Kent Hughes shared this, holding another's hand is a very personal thing, especially if it is held for any length of time. A profound communication can take place through that contact alone, even if no words are spoken, end quote. You know, I think it's, it, it, there is a, isn't it striking? I just, there is a level of intimacy. You know, just even those of us who have been ma- married for a significant uh, number of, of years, you know, even somebody who's older, who's passing away, what is, the, what is the grace gift that you can give them to be at their side and to do what? Hold their hand. Hold their hand. And the willing and rescuing hand of Jesus guided this man, according to verse 23, and it brought him outside of the village. R. Kent Hughes goes on to add, Jesus clasped the man's hand and gently guided him around obstacles, verbally directing him where, he, where to step and where not to step, steadying him when he stumbled. Can you see the master guiding the hollow-eyed man along with the disciples following close behind? Perhaps again, the man's friends experienced a letdown. There was yet no great miracle before the ooing and eyeing crowd. But the man's expectations were being heightened. He could not know it, but he was one of the most honored men who ever lived. Jesus, God incarnate, was leading him by the hand. End quote. There's a beautiful and symbolic picture of the gospel here as Jesus spiritually rescues us from the domain of darkness. He's taking this man and he's taking him out of the domain of darkness. And by the way, that's a work that only Jesus can do. I found it interesting that just like with the deaf mute man at the end of Mark 7, Jesus also led him away from the crowds, right? Took them away by himself, by himself, okay? So he's done this in both instances. It's as if he wanted to, to remove all distractions, all other forms of dependencies. Jesus brings them out with him all by himself. It's as if he's saying, I got you. And I want you to see me, and I want you to hear me first. I want you to be completely dependent upon me. Some great truths for us right there. The beauty of the gospel is that God just doesn't rescue us from the domain of darkness. But he does something else. What does he do? According to Colossians 1.13, right? He transfers us into the kingdom of light. He transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he does this when he grants us spiritual eyes to see, which sets us up appropriately for our second point. First, our sight-giving Savior rescues us from blindness. Second, our sight-giving Savior reveals sight to us. Look at the middle of verse 23. It reads, And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Verse 24, And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Again, we have no parallel passage to, to refer to. No other gospel writer included this account. 
We also have no other account of Jesus spitting directly on someone to heal them, to gain any insight. We know that when Jesus healed the deaf and mute man, you'll recall he put his fingers into his ears at the end of Mark 7, and he did a spitting motion to help him understand that he knew knew that he was mute, that he had a hard time speaking, right? We know that Jesus also used spit in John 9 when he healed that blind man, but he spit onto the ground in the dirt, and he made clay, and then he puts it on his eyes before telling him to go wash in the pool of, of Siloam, right? But we don't have any other instance of Jesus, and this is wild, isn't it? Spitting straight into his eyes. Why Jesus spits directly into his eyes cannot be known for certain. This is very unusual. And here's what a couple trusted theologians included. D. Edmund Hebert writes, The spitting on his sightless eyes was a symbolic act which the man could feel, assuring him that Jesus would deal with those eyes. The accompanying touch of his hands gave the man further assurance. For a blind man, touch means more than sound. End quote. Pretty insightful perspective. John MacArthur shares this. The saliva coming out of the Lord's own mouth, touching the man, symbolized the transfer of power. It's not a bogus magic concoction. The power is in Christ. It flows from him to the eyes, end quote. And in a sermon on the same passage, John MacArthur included that they also used to mix honey with uh, chicken blood in an attempt and rub that on the eyes as, as if that was some. So that's why he he says those words, the, the bogus concoction. The power is from Christ. And our attention shouldn't be consumed with the, the means that was used, but with the one who performed the miracle. And, and what is the result? What is the result? Specifically, we need to understand the significance of partial sight, which is the first sub-point under our, our, our second point. After Jesus spit on his eyes and touched him, he asked him, what do you see? And here Jesus asks a question following his initial, his initial touch, and it's obviously for some purpose. The question indicates Jesus knew that the recovery of sight at this stage would only be partial. And we shouldn't assume that Jesus didn't have the power to to completely perform the miracle right on the first shot. This is happening for a reason. But some commentators believe that that's part of the reason why the other gospel writers didn't include it in their accounts. Because it didn't It didn't give, it made Jesus seem like his power. This is another reason why we can uh, trust and and affirms the integrity of Scripture, right? Because no one writing a a story or making up a story is going to, about Jesus, so that people would worship him, are going to make him seem like he made a mistake here or did something that was incomplete. How does the man answer? Verse 24 says, He looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Something miraculous has already taken place. The man was completely blind. But now he can see. He has partial sight, right? 
To him, the men which were probably walking around were the 12 disciples that accompanied Jesus, right? And maybe they're standing in the distance. Maybe it also included the people who brought him to Jesus. And he says that they looked like trees, large and indistinct objects. The comparison indicates that he knew what trees looked like. And it also supports the view that he had not been born blind, by the way, which only again, strengthens and validates the integrity of the account and the healing done in stages. There's no confusion here. He already knew what people look like. He already knew what trees look like. He was no longer totally blind, yet he recognized that his sight was still imperfect, which again is only something who had been able to see before, right, would be able to know. Because if he says they were like this, then then it means that He's obviously been able to see before. What is the significance of the partial sight? I want to tell you. It symbolizes the progressive revelation of Jesus Christ to the disciples. There's been a spiritual progression from the time they were first called to follow him that has progressively allowed him to see, progressively allowed them to see him more and more clearly as the Son of God. And our study through Mark has helped us to see this. We've seen this progression just as we've been studying uh, the Scriptures together. Mark has also allowed you and I to witness their unbelief challenged time and time again by our Lord. And so far up to this point in Mark's Gospel, there's only two parties that adamantly affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. You know who they are? God the Father, all the way back in Mark 1.11, who affirmed that this is my beloved son at Jesus' baptism. And then the demons. The Holy One, the Son of God, they cried out, like in Mark 3.7 and Mark 5.11. But there's soon to be another group added. The disciples, for the most part, are still in progress, and we see them questioning at times, like at the end of Mark 4, after Jesus calmed the sea. You'll remember in that study, they said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The wheels are turning. Or like the instance when he walked on water, and they were frightened, verse 52, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't see yet. They didn't spiritually understand yet. And the word harden reflects the identical Greek word that Jesus just used at the, at the end of Mark 8, 17 in that final question when he asked, do you have a hardened heart? Same word. Do they believe? Do they not believe? That is the question. This question gets answered for us unmistakably in Mark 8, 27 through 30. And this is why Mark strategically places this three-stage miracle at this point. Listen to what James Edwards writes as he helps us understand the purpose of this miracle in stages. By the gradual healing of the blind man, track with me here. By the gradual healing of the blind man, Jesus shows how the disciples in particular may come to faith. Like the blind man, the disciples who have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear, referencing Mark 8.18, can also be made to see and hear. 
but it will not happen on their own. The ability to see both physically and spiritually is a gift of God, not of human ability. We hear nothing of the man's faith or behavior in the present story. There is no hint that as his faith grew, his healing progressed. His healing from failed sight to partial sight to complete sight comes solely from the repeated touch of Jesus. His healing exemplifies the situation of the disciples who move through the same three stages in Mark. That's fascinating. That, that is fascinating. Three touches with Jesus. He took the man initially when they was brought to him. He was totally blind, could not see, grabbed him by the hand and brought him. Second phase, he did what? He spits into his eyes. He touches them a first time. Right, he can partially see. Third phase we'll get to in just a minute. And then there was a time when the Lord Jesus Christ called his disciples, took them by the hand, said, pick up, pick up, drop your nets and follow me. Now pick up your nets and follow me. Those nets were heavy too. They wouldn't have wanted to carry them along with. Leave your fishing behind. Follow me, right? And they, they took him by the hand. And then now what? As he's progressively revealing him, stage two, right? He's going to give them sight. It, but it's in part. Okay, we're going to see this. What are the three stages? Edwards finishes by saying, the healing touch for them will come on the road to Caesarea Philippi, referencing Mark 8, 27-30, when Peter declares that Jesus is Messiah. The disciples will, no longer, will be no longer blind, but their vision will remain imperfect and blurred, for they do not understand the meaning of Messiahship. Only at the cross and resurrection will they, like the man of Bethsaida, see everything clearly. I agree with Edward's conclusion, yet I would add something further when it comes to seeing everything clearly. Might differ with him just a little bit, which takes us to our second subpoint: the sweetness of perfect sight. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 25 says, Then again, he, Jesus, laid his hands on the man's eyes, and the man looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Like the deaf mute man healed at the end of Mark 7, who was blessed to have the Lord Jesus Christ be the first voice that he ever heard, staggering, hear this man, this blind man, as he gets his eyesight restored, he is also blessed to have Jesus be the first person that he gets to see. You imagine losing your sight. And I think to some degree, that's actually worse than being born blind. You want to know why? Why? Because you, you, you've experienced, you, you've experienced what sight looks like. And so you have this idea of knowing what to expect, right? We, we, we know this, right? And so Jesus is, is there waiting, smiling. I don't know. It doesn't say smiling, but I picture the Lord smiling. I do. I'm not trying to read anything into the text. Verse 25 says that Jesus restored his sight. And the last time that Mark uses this word restored, the specific word 
restored was all the way back in Mark 3, 5, when it says he stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. It was the man with the withered hand. It reveals a complete healing. And this is qualified by the man's experience when our verse says he began to see everything clearly. What does this symbolize spiritually? Edwards already shared that the, the great confession that's coming in Mark 8, 27 through 30, reflects partial sight. And that only at, after the cross and the resurrection will they, like the man at Bethsaida, see everything clearly. Yet I also believe that Mark was led by the Holy Spirit to record it for, for another purpose. And this is why I believe that it's strategically placed here because it's going to do something. It's anticipating an event that's just about to take place. Look at the beginning of Mark chapter 9. I want you to see this. It anticipates the transfiguration that's about to come. In other words, the blind man's partial sight symbolizes, foreshadows really, the disciples' great confession in Mark 8, 27 through 30, while his perfect sight symbolizes and foreshadows what Peter, James, and John will see at the transfiguration. Since we're so close, let's just read the, the, the opening nine verses together. Mark 9, verse 1 says this, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And all the moms in the house were like, give me some of that bleach, please, for my kids. This is, this is amazing. Verse 4, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Verse 6, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. You know, and Peter just had that tendency, right, to speak. when He just would have been better off just being quiet. But you know who informed John Mark of the experience? You know who informed him? Peter. It was Peter who, and, and of course he's superintended and led by the Holy Spirit, but, but uh, many of the insights that Mark didn't get to witness that Peter did were, were, were shared with him. Pretty remarkable. And Peter's just, <laughs> I don't know, I'm just having a little fun, but make sure you say that I just didn't know how to answer, man. It was, you know, he was able to share the experience after the death. We're going to see that. Verse 7, then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I want you to remember this command. Listen to him. Verse 8, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And all God's people said, wow. 
lightning. Is that a, that's, a, that's a jaw dropper right there. That is powerful. I mean, I, how encouraging is that? And, and for, for a moment, they were blessed to witness a foretaste of perfect sight. They got to see the kingdom in its glory. They got to see Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus in a, in, in a glorified state. Jesus transfigured. Bright lightning-like flashes, just like the, the, the angels were dressed. It was just, it's just radiant. Perfect and complete sight. Incredible. So how does this miracle relate to us? Well, you'll notice in our sermon proposition that these are ongoing actions from our sight-giving Savior. These are things that He's doing all the time. Is He not rescuing people from the domain of darkness? Is He not using us to take people by the hand and to lead them to His hand? Is He not having us isn't he lead them? And then it's up to them. They can push that hand away. But let it not be because nobody took them. Let it not be, church, because nobody was willing to walk with them and understand their spiritual darkness that they were living in and that the way of the transgressor is a hard life and that they have no hope. They have no true hope. They think they probably have hope in the things of this world, but it's not a true hope. He's rescued us from spiritual blindness. Everyone who has trusted in Christ as Savior, as Messiah, has been rescued from the eternal spiritual outer darkness that Jesus describes as God's wrath and judgment. Have you trusted completely in Christ for salvation? I'm asking you, there's someone here today, have you turned and trust completely in Christ and fell on him in belief and repentance with your soul? Have you fell on Christ, collapsed on Christ, knowing that there is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you can do to contribute to your salvation. And apparently we're having just a little bit of mic difficulty. Your life, follow him in faith as Savior and Lord. Have you committed your life to follow him in faith as Savior and Lord? If you have, that means that you have been given spiritual eyes to see. Just like the famous hymn writer wrote, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. I see. If you have spiritual eyes to see, that means we have partial sight on this side of the cross. We have yet to see him in the fullness of his glory, but we can make preparations for that glorious day. How so, you ask? By applying the principle that, that the Heavenly Father gave to, to Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. 
At the beginning of the service, I shared the story about Helen Keller who was trapped in social darkness with virtually no communication with the outside world. And it was her teacher, Ann Sullivan, you'll recall, who took her by the hand and broke through her darkness to communicate with Helen Keller. What would Helen Keller have accomplished if she had turned her teacher's hand away? If she had opted not to work and grow in communication with her teacher? Think about that for a moment. It was because Helen had a teacher who took her by the hand and began regularly communicating with her that she was able to make a great contribution to this secular world as an author, as an activist, as a lecturer. And this same reality can be applied to us spiritually. Do you want to make your life count? You have to answer that question. It's not for the person to your left or for your right. It's for you and me to answer individually. Do we want our lives to count? And if we do, then we need to take our master, our teacher, by the hand. And we need to listen to him. John 15, 5 reminds us what? That apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing of, of value, nothing of, of spiritual impact or lasting value we need to apply the father's principle and exhortation that challenges us to listen to him in our communication with our teacher it's a two-way street and you'll notice down at the bottom that i offered some sermon uh, reflection questions under point number two and you can consider those today and for the remainder of this week how does our teacher desire to communicate with you? How does he desire to you to communicate with him? His word gives us all the instruction that we need, everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything that we need to know to accomplish his purposes according to our roles as a husband, father, spiritual leader, as a disciple maker, as as an effective witness of salt and light in the workplace, everything is spelled out for us. He tells us, will we listen to him? We also get to communicate with him through prayer and dependence as we're grown more and more like Christ. And we're even going to have an opportunity. Listen, maybe your prayer life, maybe your prayer life hasn't been what it needs to be. Maybe an invitation to stay during second hour today isn't that isn't the most convenient thing right it isn't it's not about convenience it's about relationship it's about communication it's about listening to him and it's about you sharing with what's on your heart and how you need to grow and and expressing your gratitude about how he's growing you it's about how how we can link arms together and bring our requests to him and someday very soon, we will be granted perfect sight. We will see everything clearly. And most significantly, we'll see the full radiance and the glory of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John was blessed with some extraordinary visions of God's future glory. And I think it's fitting to share what he wrote in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, to close this message on our sight-giving Savior. John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, 
and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we want to pray and ask that you would continue to allow us to celebrate the truths of the gospel that have rescued us from, that we've been rescued from the domain of, of darkness. And it's not just that we have been rescued, but then we've also been given something. We've been given a stewardship. We've been given sight. We've been given the ability to see you and to hear from you. And Father, I feel the weight of conviction even in my own heart how there can be half days and in some instances even entire days that go by and I look back and I realize just how little I, I listened to your voice how I didn't pick up my Bible to even hear your voice. How I didn't even respond in any way through, through prayer and dependency upon you. Father, I just pray that you'll not allow us to have many of those days. That you will even use this sermon to help us see the tremendous spiritual privilege that we have been given in Christ who has indeed given us eyes to see and ears to hear would our Bibles not stay seated on the nightstand or left in the car but may they be in our hands and may those words speak straight to our heart may we be studying you so that we can make a lasting impact and what we do now, what we do now with our lives determines the spiritual impact that we have. How we embrace the communication that we have, the two-way communication with you, will determine the spiritual redemptive value of our lives. Help us not to lose sight of that. Help us to stay focused on Christ. Help us to see the, the, the radiance, though we only see in part, move us towards greater fullness. Help us with joyful anticipation prepare for the time where no more sin, no more blind spots, nothing will hinder our, our view. It will be completely unobstructed. Until then, we have to battle and wage war. We have to fight for it. We ask that you would give us the grace and the means to do so by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and through us. We ask this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.